many Americans live on the outskirts of hope, some because of their poverty and some because of their color, and all too many because of both. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That clip was from the 1964 State of the Union Address from President Lyndon Johnson when he declared an unconditional war on poverty. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, February 7th. First, let's talk about shifting narratives and media and information systems, one of our pillars of democracy here at One for Democracy. We chose that clip to start us off because, of course, we are awaiting President Biden's second State of the Union address tonight. Now, most State of the Union speeches are not remarkable. They can be agenda setting, they can help telegraph an administration's priorities, but they don't change the political dynamics. That clip um, from Johnson's State of the Union speech in 1964 is often noted as one of a handful that really bucked the trend, a powerful and politically important speech alongside others like FDR's Four Freedoms speech or Lincoln's 1862 call to end slavery. In the months that followed Johnson's speech, his administration successfully pushed forward legislation that expanded the government's role in civil rights, education, health care. It went on to produce things like the Office of Economic Opportunity, Job Corps, VISTA, food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, huge programs that we are still in debate about their future today and are essential to the core of federal government intervention in American society. We're not expecting the same from President Biden's speech tonight, of course. That's a speech given against the backdrop of rising consumer prices, balanced with a strong labor market, new Republican House majority, ongoing war in Ukraine, spy balloon from China, and more. What we are expecting is for him to call for some type of unity agenda, a set of bipartisan interventions that he's calling on Congress to work with him on. Things like cracking down on the influx of fentanyl coming into the U.S. or continuing to tackle the mental health crisis particularly among kids, trying to position himself as the thoughtful and senior leader who is bringing a divided government and divided people together. Um, Actually, Peter Wenner, who ran the uh, strategic initiatives effort for President Bush in 2006, said recently, sometimes having divided government actually helps you politically as a president because it allows you to present your agenda as eminently reasonable, meaning that the only unreasonable people would oppose what you're trying to do. And that's very much the tact that Biden is trying to take. He's trying to position himself as the reasonable alternative to an increasingly far-right controlled Republican House majority. That's not to say there won't be some progressive inclusions in the State of the Union. Expect him to talk about gun control. Expect him to talk about financial inequality. He's said that he's going to renew his call for a billionaire minimum income tax, quadrupling the levy on stock buybacks. But the core of his push tonight is expected to be a kind of unity agenda. I am the reasonable leader in this moment kind of tone. Other things we're tracking in democracy issues. 
uh, this week in terms of increasing civic and democratic participation. The big news is coming out of Minnesota, where the restore the vote legislation, um, which would restore the franchise to people who have been formerly incarcerated, was approved by the House. Now is headed over to the Senate before it can be signed into law by Governor Walz. Also, Mandela Barnes, who a Democrat who came very close to winning the U.S. Senate seat in Wisconsin in November, has announced that he's launching a PAC to help candidates who are written off by institutional supporters, women, people of color, LGBT people, working class candidates, trying to overcome the barriers that they face, especially around fundraising, as they seek to be proving they are electable and viable candidates. In terms of uh, elections administration, as we think about how to protect and modernize our elections, um, the big news is that we are expecting updates to the voter rolls coming very soon. Um, this is when individual states release their voter rolls from the previous election. This time, it's getting more complicated because conservative states are withdrawing from the Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, database. So this is a voluntary network that 31 states and D.C. use to check for duplicates. If you've passed away in a different state, you get flagged. If you've moved from one state to the other state, you get flagged. It helps states to coordinate uh, how they are moving forward. And Louisiana withdrew last year. Alabama's uh, newly elected Secretary of State withdrew from Eric as his first official act when he took office early last month. Ohio, Oklahoma, Texas are considering or have passed legislation that could make it hard to participate in Eric, basically breaking down a what had been voluntarily and quite effective nonpartisan voter registration kind of coordination mechanism. Just another sign of how even administering elections are getting polarized. Lastly, when we think about the how do we strengthen democratic norms and institutions, the kind of final pillar that O4D often looks at, some of the things kind of bubbling up this week to uh, pay attention to, of course, been hearing about the nominating process for the next presidential cycle. The Democratic National Committee has officially moved to deprioritize the Iowa caucus. They're putting South Carolina first on February 3rd next year, and then New Hampshire and Nevada on the 6th, Georgia on the 13th, and Michigan on the 27th. Michigan has now approved the reschedule of their primary, so kind of further moving this reshuffle down the tracks, although there are questions about Will Republican-controlled states like South Carolina and Georgia move their primaries in compliance with the DNC plans? And of course, Iowa and New Hampshire have both said that they are not going to bow from pressure from Washington, D.C., from the DNC. So back and forth struggle around the kind of cycle of nominations and the calendar remains, but will be really something to watch because the idea and the question of is it, will it prioritize states that have more of a racially diverse uh, democratic base earlier in the cycle. Uh, what would that do to who can become viable? It also makes it more difficult in bigger states to be a breakout candidate, whereas you can go on the ground in a New Hampshire or an Iowa who are so much smaller, kind of notch a first win through interpersonal lobbying versus having to be up on the airwaves or have a big campaign like you would in bigger states like a South Carolina, Georgia, or Michigan. The other thing on the democratic norms, of course, is that the Supreme Court in North Carolina has agreed to rehear both the gerrymandering and the voter ID cases from the last session. This is after the GOP flipped control of the court 
They flipped two seats, so there's now a conservative majority on the North Carolina court, and the state legislature asked them to rehear these uh, two cases. The worrisome precedent of the fact that they said yes is that generally a court will only rehear a case if something has changed in the underlying dynamics of the case itself. There are no changes in either of these two cases. They're simply agreeing to rehear the case because there's been a political change in the composition of the court. It makes for a much more unstable uh, litigation process and kind of winnows away or undermines the ability of the courts to serve as a final check. Now they're just another political entity. And of course, probably the state GOP wants to get in front of any potential ramifications from Moore v. Harper decision, which is going to come out early in the summer. Uh, We'll talk more about Moore v. Harper in a coming week. Uh, And last, of course, is that we are still paying attention to Wisconsin and their April special election. In particular, not only the special election for the Supreme Court, which has the potential to flip the balance of power in Wisconsin Supreme Court from Republican to Democrat, the reverse direction of North Carolina, but also that in the um, state Senate, even though the governor, Tony Everts, won by three points last year in his reelection campaign, Wisconsin Republicans won a two-thirds majority in the state Senate thanks to the very badly gerrymandered maps. But they do have a chance to overcome that supermajority in a special election for a vacant uh, Republican-held seat on April 4th. And actually, the leading candidate for it has been so far conservative um, and actually backed a unsuccessful primary challenge against the Republican Assembly Speaker. They, she was booted from the Republican caucus last year. So real question of who will be up um, as the candidate from the Republican side. Will it be Rep. Janelle or will it be somebody else? And will it give the chance for Democrats to flip that seat, which would break the supermajority, which would be another check on the balance of power in Wisconsin, a critical swing state in the presidential elections. So things to be watching. It's a reminder of how important you know, a single local election can be on the balance of power in a whole state and then have its impact on the whole country. So things to watch for. But that's all for this week's review of American Democracy. I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.